Hello. Today we are being joined by Rex Paris, the mayor of Lancaster and a stellar trial lawyer throughout the country. Rex, great to be with you again, and I want to address some different subjects with you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, okay. I enjoy these conversations. Now, Rex, I haven't worked with you and knowing you well, I know that you do a lot of things outside of just reading legal books to enhance your ability to learn more about science. Tell, tell all our listeners, what are the type of things you do outside? You know, I guess if you were to, if I were to divide the amount of time I've spent studying legal issues versus cognitive science issues, which is, you know, just a passion I have, it would probably be 10% legal, 90%, you know, cognitive science, which is really about how people make decisions, how to get people to make a decision, uh, how to persuade. What got you interested in that? Uh, well, you know, once I became a lawyer and I started trying to be a lawyer, uh, I really didn't have the skills to do it. You know, I, uh, I mean, you see it all the time where you'll, you'll see senior partners and thousand member law firms get up there and their hands are shaking when they're talking to the court. They don't really tell us how to, how to do this, you know, and, and how to present things comfortably. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, pressures in this field that are unnecessary. And I think it was an effort to deal with those. So first of all, I know you love to read. A lot of people don't read enough. Tell us why you like to read and what you get from it. And then we're going to talk about what type of things you like to read. Well, you know, I think Bill Gates said it best. If you want to know who the smartest person in the room is, it's the person who reads the most books. Doesn't matter what their IQ is. Doesn't matter what their education level is. It only matters who reads the most books. And, you know, I think that pretty much says it all. Are you always reading? But, uh, certainly every day. I, I try to get up at four o'clock every morning and you know, spend the first two hours just studying different, different things. What what kind of books do you read? Most of what I read that, you know, is related to what I do as the mayor or as a lawyer, it's the same skill set, are just different books on cognitive, cognitive science, how, how our brain works, how people reveal themselves, uh, how people come to conclusions. What, what are some of the cornerstone or horn books that you think all lawyers should read just to get the basic understanding before they get in depth like you have? Yeah, I've always liked Stephen Pinker's, uh, um, you know, I just drew a blank. Anyway, Stephen Pinker's work is, is great stuff. Uh, Caldini is, is by far the first author I think everybody should read. His latest book is Persuasion. Uh, and it's how to, you know, set up how a person's going to, to decide an issue. And you do it by priming them early. And, you know, if you, if you view the way our thought process is, is just following a path, you want to set the path in the right direction. Once you do that, it's very hard for somebody to switch over. And this is all about that, how to, how to, uh, how to prime the recipient of the message. So, so you, you read some books to get some knowledge, but you do more than that. You've gone to classes, you've taken classes. Well, tell us how you pursue those interests. Well, you know, I guess it started about, you know, 25 years ago when I went to the trial lawyers college and I met lawyers there that, you know, Paul Vera, people you know from the inner circle. And 
Paul told me about NLP and you know neuro linguistic programming. And so a couple years later, when I'm doing this, I, I I'm at an event Paul's at, and I said, you know, my wife's concerned that we're teaching this to other lawyers. And he said, I wouldn't worry about that. Of all the thousands of lawyers I've told about NLP, you're the only one that actually went and got certified. And, you know, so I think the message there is it's not enough just to go to a seminar and hear this stuff. You actually have to embrace it and become fully engaged in it. Now, neuro-linguistic programming, I think, is valid for about 70% of what they teach. Tell us about that. What is NLP? How do you use it? You know, it came, came about in the 70s uh, by Richard Bandler, and it's just ways to prime people, uh, to prime the message, to mirror people. Mirroring is a really interesting thing where you, you actually adopt their body postures and tone of voice of whoever you're, you're trying to persuade. And they were talking about that in the 70s, and it wasn't until 1994 that they actually discovered we really do have mirror neurons, that when, when those mirror neurons engaged, it's as if you're actually doing the activity, you know, when you watch people. The reason that's so important to us is you want to be very clear that whatever emotions you're adopting in the courtroom, the jury is feeling those. And that becomes critically important as you analyze the, the uh, the ultimate result of that. So give us an example, how you would set that up and use that in a trial. Well, the mirroring neurons is, is pretty, pretty easy to use. And you have to be subtle about it, but you know, like when you can identify who's leading the jury by who the others, when the others adopt their body posture, you know, like your, your hands just like that. What apparently how's that works is that when we see somebody adopt the same posture and move when we move, is that's a, that's a signal to us that we're affiliated with them, you know, and it lessens the, the risk assessment that we are constantly engaged in when dealing with a group of people. And so you want to identify with that group. You want them to identify you as one of them. And, and you can do that just by identifying who the leaders are and then making sure that occasionally you're adopting the same posture, you're moving at the same time. Um, and it, it takes a lot of practice so that you don't look like a, a uh, that you're mimicking them. You know, uh, it's got to be subtle. Although I, I don't think I've ever been discovered doing it. So... But that's just one example. It's, it's how, where to focus people's attention, how you use your body to do it. Uh, you know, people, you, you, we tend to gesture in a direction that we want people to look, but it's really not the hand they're following. What they're following is your eyes. They will mirror you. They will look where you're looking. That becomes critically important when you get into a dispute with the judge. You don't want to be in eye contact with them. You know, I'll always transfer it to an empty chair, the witness chair, or the, the empty jury box, and, and you know, imagine what this jury is going to think. Uh, and then I can be as, as angry as I want. I can be as indignant as I want, as long as I'm not in eye contact with them. Good thing to remember with your kids. You know, with, if the child comes home with a bad report card and you're raising hell about it, make sure you're looking at the report card, that you're not looking at the child. Because whenever you're in eye contact, you're, you're in relationship. 
And if you're in a negative uh, setting with that, you're damaging the relationship. Uh, you're much more effective if you're very aware of, of where you're directing the people to look. Uh, I've seen that you do mapping. Mind mapping. Preparing mind mapping and preparing your examination. I saw it. I, I didn't understand it. For what is it? How do you do it and why do you do it? You know, we, we come out of law school trying to do everything in a linear fashion. We, we outline everything linearly. Uh, the problem with that is, is it's very hard when the subject changes or when the objection sustained to, to pick up where you need to, to go. But with mind mapping, you do it in a circular fashion and you, the topics are in a circle. And then, you know, subtopics are, are drawn off of that. The, the value of that is that if I have to go to another topic, it's very easy to do it. I just switch over because it's all in front of me. All of my notes for every witness, for every argument, for every opening, every closing, all of them are visual and on one sheet of paper. And with the mind mapping, the really effective ones is you find different types of pictures that you place on it because, you know, 70% of our brain is visual. And so the more things you can make visual, uh, the more effective you're going to be. But every one of our lawyers now does mind mapping. It, it's, you, you can go onto the internet, type in mind mapping. There's 25 different applications you can choose from. So we found that the, the best one is the one that's free, interestingly enough. Uh, wow. Um, it, but there's also books, you know, on, on Amazon, mind mapping, they're short, they're easy reads. It just takes practice. You spent so much time with these things that people would say, well, they're not law related mind mapping, but you, you're able to transition them into your practice. How, how do you do that with the technology? I mean, you're, you're, you're not an old guy, but you've been around a while. So it's most people think it's harder for people that have been around when there were no computers, there were no iPhones. How did you find yourself making that transition? Well, certainly it was a slower uh, education process, but you know, big moments in my life before computers was being able to go to the LA County Law Library, you know, uh, to be able to go to UCLA Law Library, and you know. It, it's nowadays, there's just no excuse. You know, one of the, the hard problems with crossing domains, you know, like reading about science instead of law, is you don't have the vocabulary. But now you have Kindles, and every time I don't understand a word, I just highlighted it, and there goes the definition. There, there's no excuse now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, it's hog heaven for me. But that gets back to, Again, the smartest person is the person that reads the most. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm certainly not the sharpest tool, but I probably read more than anybody in the room. Let's talk about uh, facial recognition, another cutting edge, cognitive, scientific area that you're involved in. What yeah, is it? Really tell, and I know you love that, so tell us about it. Well, I, I'm really proud of it because I... Were, were the vanguard of it initially. And you have Paul Ekman, who, you know, did all the research back in the, the 70s and 80s on there are 
six uh, facial expressions that are cross-cultural, you know, sadness, uh, joy, contempt, anger, surprise, uh, and fear. Those, every culture, it's the same expression. And he has these training courses that trains you to do it that fast. I mean, just micro expressions, you get it immediately. But, you know, it takes 20 minutes a day for a couple months to, to get that skill. But what is that skill? It's the skill to know what you're feeling as the conversation progresses. Uh, the, the, the difficulty is, is it's the whole package of different feelings that I'm seeing from you. It's not just one. We tend to always oh, angry and not pay attention to the others. So it, it, you know, it can be misleading. But then, you know, the advent of computers came and you got algorithms now that can read uh, nine expressions and they can read a group of 500 people, a thousand people, you know, they read them all at the same time. The more people, the better, because it gets rid of the noise, you know, the, the, uh, you, you get a better analysis of it. So we took that and we started, you know, putting our cases into a 15 minute uh, presentation, you know, the major facts, and then we tracked how different, how they were feeling in the different demographics, how the different demographics would feel not not what they were thinking and then we survey them with different issues in the case we want to know and, and what kind of verdict they're willing to give and we were able to match up the emotions with the best result and it was fascinating stuff we discovered one thing we discovered is if you want to lower your verdict make the jury angry if you want to make if you want to lower your verdict make the jury sad it was the the jur jurors that were happy that gave us the most money uh, and you know that that's a lot of information to have except you got to figure out how to make them happy you know what is it they want to accomplish what's going to make them feel good and then you time the presentation so and then you also learned like this part of the case makes the jurors that gave you the most money really angry but it has to be early in the case it can't be at the end uh, so you, you, you get the choreography of the presentation down. So that was going, we were, we were doing great work with it. We just loved it. And then Apple bought the underlying company. And so we, we lost our partner. We're now getting ready to do it again. And so I'm kind of excited about it. Have you done focus groups where you use the dials, where you're assessing the people's reaction to certain evidence how do you do that and explain that for us please yeah you know, frank luntz was the one who really you know the the republican pollster was the guy who really you know put that on the map and i've done that with cases the the problem with it is it's really antiquated at this point all that tells you is people's level of interest you know the other thing the facial expression gives you is confusion now if you use the computer and frustration so it, it allows you to isolate which part of your case there is confusing the jury, and then you can work on that and fix it. None of that is able, you're not able to do that with the dials. Uh, the, the best example of this, I think, was the first Republican debate. And when Trump raised his hand as the only candidate who would not agree to promise not to start a third party candidate. Uh, and the crowd got sounded really angry but when you 
you know, we, we looked, what we did is we had the computer analyze the crowd and the emotion was actually joy. And when Frank Lance was on television that day saying there's no way Trump can win because of how angry he made people, it really wasn't true. What will happen is when a few people in the group are angry, they make a lot of noise, and then the rest of the group will start mirroring the noise. But what you're really interested in is, is that initial emotional reaction. And it was 72% joy. Uh, wow. It, it was exactly the opposite of how it was read. So for young people starting out either in law school or getting out of law school, they want to be trial lawyers. What advice would you have for them? Well, you know, my biggest advice to them is wake up at four o'clock in the morning and start studying. And you want to study, how do you persuade people? The, you know, the, 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 and it's, it's such a fascinating field now, and there's just so much information on it that it, it takes a long time to learn it. The, you know, I mean, as you know, the rewards of this profession are, huge. I mean, huge. Not only do you have huge impact on society and on the world, the financial uh, uh, means that it gives you are certainly beyond anything I ever dreamed of. But it's not easy. You know, if making money was easy, everybody would be rich. Uh, the, the real, you know, the, I was incredibly lucky. I married this incredibly bright woman who ran the office. You know, she did all the business part of it, handled the trust account, handled all of those things that take up so much of a lawyer's time that they never have time to figure out how to do what they do best or should do best, which is persuade people. You know, the, uh, you know, one thing that I'm doing now is I'm learning the rules. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to me that I spent so long not knowing the rules, but I'm memorizing the key elements of the evidence code so that I can cite the, the code section and almost give it back to the judge. Um, you're mirroring. You're mirroring. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What about this? Let's, let's talk about overall in the practice of law, some mistakes that you've made that others can learn from. Well, you know, I think the, the biggest mistake I ever made that I made consistently every single day was I was, I was an asshole. You know, I mean, I was a jerk. The, uh, I thought being a lawyer was being the, the meanest uh, junkyard dog on the block. And uh, what I've learned is in my success, whatever success I had was in spite of that, that if I want to persuade people, the way to do it is you're the nice guy, you know, the, and the, the benefits of that from a cognitive point of view, are, you know, when you, when you have a nice relationship with somebody, their threat assessment drops and they, they, you're actually making them a better lawyer when you, when you abuse them because their, their threat assessment goes up they're, they They're on guard a lot more. The judges get so tired of reading these letters that, you know, are just people being jerks. Uh, we don't allow any letters to go out of this office that are mean-spirited, regardless of the reason. Now, I'm actually getting a computer program with IBM Watson to review every letter, every email for tone. And if it's a, a, a nasty tone, 
uh, it, it, I'm alerted and I'll make the decision if there's an extraordinary circumstance where it should be sent. If I had it to do over again, I would, I would just have been a lot nicer to people. Well, you know, the old saying, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, kind of apropos for lawyers, especially if they're the plaintiff lawyer and you want the other side to give money for your client, it's a lot easier for them to give it to a nice guy or woman than it is to some jerk. They just as soon make them go, go to trial. And in the end, you're probably hurting your client. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, there was no benefit to the way I, and it wasn't even my nature, you know, it was my image of what I thought good lawyers were. And it, it was not. And I, and I think that's what the practice part of has lost it. Everyone thinks whoever yells loudest or writes the meanest letters is going to win. In reality, you're not only hurting your client, but yourself and your reputation, which is all you have as a lawyer. That's right. That's right. It, all right, it, Rex, we're, run, we're running out of time. One minute to go. Okay. Give us your biggest mistake in trial. You know, not recognizing when you have, when the motion and liminees are done, not recognizing if your case has been eviscerated. You know, every now and then, because you get so committed to the case that you think you can overcome everything, but it, when a judge takes away the, the compelling part of your case, you need to be able to recognize that and settle it. You know, it, 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 that, that has cost us the most money. Just thinking, you know, that's kind of what's the strength of the trial lawyer is their courage and belief and passion can also be their biggest weakness. And I think what you're saying is try to have reasoned, unpassioned, judgment. That's right. That's right. And I, I think you know yourself that being a trial lawyer is very difficult. It's very hard to do by yourself. And so you really need a team approach and you need to listen to your team. You know, the, the paralegals in our office have as much sway on me, if not more, than the associate lawyers. You, you listen to the team. Absolutely. Okay. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We got to do this again, Rex. It's great to speak with you and uh, keep up all your great work. Thanks, Brian.